Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Solari Gentle, uh, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. I've um, I've wanted to talk to you for some time. I don't know where you've been hiding, so thanks for coming in. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been intentionally hiding, just lurking. Lurking. Okay. Um, so I will introduce you. You were born in Sri Lanka and raised in Zambia and Brisbane. That's a kind of an interesting mix, isn't it? Oh, uh, look, it, it is interesting. I mean, throwing in Brisbane. <laughs> throwing in Brisbane is interesting. Well, it was, it was because I suppose Brisbane or, or Australia was the end game. Uh, when my fa- parents originally emigrated, they intended to come to Australia, but the white Australia policy was still in place at the time. Okay, we'll come back to that. Let me finish the <laughs> intro because I want to talk about Oh, sorry. That. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> I thought we were fully in. <laughs> no, not yet. So Lari went to university to study astrophysics. So that's, you know, something you can do with your eyes shut. Graduated in law and after years of working in corporate law, realised her real passion was for storytelling. She has since written a fantasy adventure series, The Hero Trilogy, as well as an outstanding work of metafiction called Crossing the Lines, which was recognised as Best Crime Novel of the Year at the 2018 Ned Kelly Awards. Congratulations. Thank you. And we do want to talk about metafiction. Solari is best known for her Roland Sinclair series, a collection of historical mystery novels set in 1930s Sydney and featuring an artist and reluctant amateur sleuth, Roland Sinclair, who's also the hero. I think it's the way it's written here that I'm getting so confused. But you're going to explain that to us in a second, aren't you? I am. She's here today to talk to us about her latest instalment, All the Tears in China, a book that sweeps readers along the ride as Roland journeys to Shanghai, and it's a thrilling murder and mystery. I mean, there is so much in here in that introduction and so many talking points. So we're going to start with you growing up and how you got to Australia. Uh, well, um, my my parents or my father had decided to come to Australia, um, and when... From Sri Lanka. From Sri Lanka. I was born and I had an, I have an older sister who was born in Sri Lanka and my parents and they had decided to emigrate and their, their goal and their aim was uh, Australia. But at the time, unfortunately, the white Australia policy was still in place. And so they were rejected. But at the time they were rejected, the official who told them they couldn't come, um, because they weren't white. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, He'd failed the test in Icelandic or whatever they decided to administer it in. Uh, and was the wrong colour. Outrageous. It, it is. And it was just, it's just a part of our history now. Yeah. Um, but he did say to my dad that the white Australia policy was on the way out. There was a change of government and it wouldn't last much longer. And so he suggested to dad that he go away for five years and reapply, uh, which is what he did. Uh, along with a whole heap of other people. Um, mm. And my parents decided to go to Africa. My dad was an accountant, so he took a five-year contract there. And uh, 
we learnt to speak, and he sent us to international schools because he was still determined to go to Australia, and he wanted us to learn to speak English. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I learnt to speak English in Lusaka. Mm-hmm. And eventually, and how old were you when, at the time when we went to Zambia? I would have been maybe one. Uh, wow. I would have been tiny. Um, so I was just a babe in arms, really, maybe one and a half. Yeah. Um, my, uh, my father had gone to England. Um, and my parents had, you know, physically separated at that point so that he could go to England. Which was quite common, wasn't it, for parents to do that for the benefit of their children and their family. Exactly. And then when he had collected enough money, he brought us all over to England. Mm. Uh, And, of course, by that time we'd forgotten who he was. Mm. Uh, And we were terrified of him initially uh, because we'd come from a tropical island where people didn't wear that much in the way of clothing in in comparison to England in the winter. And we were greeted by a man in a big great coat and sunglasses and we were terrified of him. Um, so Dad often tells the story of how long it took him and how many smarties it took him to win us over, mm-hmm. uh, to talk to him and come near him again. And then we went to Zambia. And Right. And when did you get to Australia? We got to Australia in 1977. And how old were you then? I was six. Oh, wow. Um, so I was, you know, so for most of my, um, most of my memorable life, I, I, I do remember Zambia, but, but for most of my memorable life, I've been Australian. Yeah. It's an interesting story um, because my parents are Lebanese, um, as you probably know, and uh, I was born here, but we did go to Lebanon for a time and then came back when I was six. And I remember starting school and not knowing how to speak English. Yeah. I, I, I spoke English, but I pronounced everything incorrectly. Mm. Um, and I, I do remember that feeling of, you know, reading things out loud and reading them as they were written. Mm. Um, because I'd had no experience of people speaking those words to me mm. and the class breaking into giggles. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was, I mean, it, it's, it's a very common migrant story. It is. Um, and what was your experience in Brisbane? So that's where you came to. No, we came to Melbourne. Oh, you came to Melbourne. So okay. as, as people do. And after a couple of years, uh, my father was transferred to Brisbane. Right. And that suited my parents because they were from the tropics yes. and Melbourne was very cold, cold for my mother. Yeah. So you grew up in Melbourne? Just for two years. I started school in Melbourne and yeah. then um, by the time I oh, was... Oh, yeah, and then moved to Brisbane. Yeah, yeah, by the time I was eight, we were living in Brisbane. Right, okay. So when did the passion for storytelling start? Well, it did start. It had its roots in Melbourne, funnily enough. When when I was a child, uh, we, we lived in, a, in, in Melbourne. We lived in a little brick veneer house in a place called Noble Park North Mm -hmm. and it was a very new suburb there were no trees and we'd come from very temperate why does that happen that still happens in new estates yes they build houses and no trees you would think that they'd start with the trees well because we know better (laughs) yes exactly still happens but there was nothing and it was so it was very very hot Mm. and we'd come from very temperate Zambia and we had never experienced hot nights before Mm. And so in those hot, in, right into the Melbourne summer, it was, a, it was a bit of a shock to the system. So we used to troop out of the house at mm. night and lie on the lawn. And we still, it was still too hot to sleep, but we'd just sort of gaze at the stars. And my father would tell us stories, uh, about the mythology, mm. uh, of the stars oh, and the constellations. 
Yeah, uh, but you know the funny thing was I forgot. I forgot all about that because I would have been very young, six or seven, when that happened. Um, and but though I had forgotten the actual details of that, I had always looked to the sky with this sense of wonder and thrill. Um, and every every time I looked at the stars, it just it, it just struck something in me, and. I thought that that meant I should be an astrophysicist. Mm. Um, of course, I was wrong. Of course, I mean that. You know, I look up at the stars and think I should be an astrophysicist. <laughs> and um, and so, you know, that's that's why I went to university originally to study astrophysics. Uh, well, you must have been a good student. Oh, oh it wasn't yeah. just looking at the stars. But it was that was where it was always directed. I had always thought. You know, and I, and I was very happy when I found the term astrophysicist because I knew that astronauts had to be extremely fit. And yes. I didn't want to be extremely fit. I just no. wanted to look at the stars. Yeah. But when I went to university to study astrophysics. Were there many women studying astrophysics at the time? There were two in my class, myself yeah. and another girl. Yeah. Uh, which it was, I mean, it was, though bear in mind, it was a very small class because it was a very, it was an honours grade class. So to, yeah. So, so to do it. Where were you? I was at the ANU. Yeah. At the, at the time. But I realised very quickly that, um, what I had thought of as, you know, stars and constellations and, and the glory of the night sky was being reduced to mathematical formula. Yes. And, because it's science, I it's guess. It's science. It's, yeah. it's maths. Yes. It's maths and physics. Yeah. And, um, and I realized that what I had fallen in love with was not so much the stars themselves, but the stories my father had woven into them. Mm. Um, and that was probably my first indication. Um, but of course I didn't, I didn't become a writer then. I became a lawyer. Mm. Uh, that's yeah, what you do. That's what you do. Yeah. You know, you've got to have a profession, a serious mm. profession. You've you got to earn some money. Yes, you can't go off and be a rock star. <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, and so, um, and and the law was, you know, a perfectly good profession. I liked being a lawyer. Did you practice law? I, pra- I was a corporate lawyer. Oh, so right. I worked for several years right. as a corporate lawyer. Uh, but, in Brisbane? Uh, no, I worked in, um, because I went to the ANU, I worked oh, in Canberra, Canberra yeah. and Tasmania. Oh, I, right. I worked for the Hydroelectric Corporation there. Oh, wow, interesting. Uh, I was an energy and water lawyer. Right. Uh, so big corporate contracts about energy and water. Um, but I was a serial hobbyist. So I was one of those people that would pick up a hobby, do it very intensely for about six months, master it, and then move on to the next one. And I picked up writing in exactly the same way. Oh, wow. Uh, one day I'd sort of, you know. So had you thought about creative writing before then? No, no, no. not really. I had, you know, it was the way I was brought up, wanting to be a writer was like wanting to be a actress or a rock star. It was yeah. all very well, but not realistic. Yeah. Uh, and in my family, you became a doctor, a lawyer or an engineer. Mm. Those were the professions. Because mm. uh, they had a title. It had a title and, you know, and for, for my, I suppose, you know, migrant families are very keen that their children are secure financially. It makes sense. Yeah. It's coming from a good place, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is coming from yeah. a good place. It's their vocational jobs where there is a job at the end of it. Exactly. But if you want to be a writer, there's not necessarily a job at the end of no, it. No, no, there isn't. No. And, and so... I had just picked up writing because I'd finished the welding course and mm-hmm. and thought I needed 
I needed to do something. Um, and you finished the welding course? Well, I was a serial hobby. I, I welded, I did lead lighting, I can pregnancy test your cows. I, was, <laughs> I did everything under the sun um, before I came to writing. Um, but I very quickly realised when I did start writing. And this is all while you are working? While I was working. I was a, yeah. yeah, I was a lawyer then. Um, that I... I wasn't going to stop writing, that it was different to the other hobbies. It was as right. natural as breathing. And I started in Greek mythology, right. which became uh, the books which became the Hero Trilogy, mm. because I naturally went back to that place where I first fell in love with story, and that was where my father would tell me mm. stories woven into the stars. So how did you approach it? Did you start writing or did you go and do a course? No, I just started writing. Yes. I had no idea what I was doing. I opened had a laptop you been somewhere. a big reader? Uh, I had always, I had thought I was a big reader until I've met mm. big readers. Mm. And now I don't think I was a big reader. I was mm. just a, a reader. reader. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I had always been interested in story. And I think one of the things that, um, happens, particularly if you're a migrant, is you become a storyteller because people want to know your story all the time. Mm. So in some ways I was from a storytelling tradition mm. and law felt natural to me because it also is a storytelling profession. Um, you know, full of fiction. Full of fiction. <laughs> <laughs> full of, well, the, the law does teach okay. you to understand perspective and how you can change yeah. a story by changing perspective. Yeah, well, it's not interesting. Um, so, yeah, so uh, very, very much so that it was, um, yeah, uh, the, the training for me was I had been a reader, mm. not necessarily a, a reader of the monumental standards that I know some people are, but I was mm. a reader. Mm. Uh, I had, I had, been born to a family of storytellers particularly my mother is a wonderful storyteller she can make the most mundane things sound entertaining um, and then I had gone to this university to study astrophysics which is mainly pure mathematics what pure mathematics teaches you is logical sequence of thinking right and so it becomes really innate and so even now I don't plot at all. I just sit down and start writing. And it all works out because I think my brain has been trained by that mathematical And training. so do you write in chronological order? You just chrono start? I, yep. I start from the first first word and I go to the last word. I have no idea what's going to happen. Right. So you, the story is not in your head to start with? No, I start. Uh, so when I'm writing, it's often to find out what's happening. Wow. Uh, so I'm finding out at the same time the reader finds out quite often. Yeah. Um, so it was that, and then you had the legal profession, which teaches you to write quickly, mm. uh, to choose your words precisely, mm. uh, and also to argue logically. Mm. And in a lot of ways, even a fiction book is an argument. Mm. It's a persuasion. Mm. Um, and you're trying to persuade the reader uh, to, uh, to believe mm. in mm. the world that you're creating. So it does have a lot of links with the law. So I suspect that... Um, I did have an adequate training in that sense. And, you know, the writing is one of those wonderful professions in that there's no wasted time because all the years before you picked up the pen and started writing, you were gathering material. Mm. Well, I mean, it's life that gathers material, yes, isn't it? And exactly. experience and gosh, I mean, you've got, you had a plethora of it, really. Well, I think, I, I think everybody does in every sphere. And I was always, I was a shy kid too. 
Mm. Um, so you wouldn't know it now, but when, when I was a teenager, I was very, very shy. And what happens with shy people is they observe other people. Mm. Um, and so I think I, I, I did have a great bank of observations about human beings, mm. um, that I could draw on when I, when I started writing. Mm, that's so true. And so, okay, so you started as a hobbyist. <laughs> and what did you write? What was your first book? The, the first. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Books were the hero trilogy. So the first book was Chasing Odysseus. It was written before A Few Right Thinking Men. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, I wrote it just for myself. I didn't think anybody would want to uh, publish uh, a, a speculative fiction based on the Odyssey and the Iliad. Mm. I thought that was just a an an, an a whim of mine. Mm. Um, it did get published, and um, and so tell me how that happened. How it happened? How, how you got published? Because a lot of our listeners are, um, you know, aspiring uh, writers or writers, and people like to hear other people's writing stories. So, how did you get published? Well, I, I read. Were you still working? I was still working, and yeah. I read the, I read the material that said you should get an agent first, mm-hmm. and and I, you're methodical, so you'll go step by step. So I sent <laughs> sent out to every single agent in Australia, and New Zealand. Yeah. And I was heartily rejected by every single one. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, part of... And why do you think that is? Because you're, I think you have a really unusual style. Um, do you think that's why? I'm not sure, but they did all reject me. Yeah. Uh, every, every single one of them just, you know, um, and, and not even what people call a nice rejection in the sense that you get feedback that says, you know, we really like your work, but it just doesn't fit on our list. It was just the, the, uh, with compliment slip. <laughs> <laughs> it's not funny, but it is. It, it, well, look, it, yeah. yeah, and you know, it, it's it's <laughs> a tough gig. It is a tough gig, and you know, it's one of the things. Lucky you're know, working. Lucky I was working, and luckily I had no expectations. Yeah, but because I was a lawyer, my training is: if you can't go one path, go another. Yes. So I thought, well, why not go straight to the publishers? Which mm. at the time wasn't really done. No. Um, and I did. I went straight to the publishers. I sent manuscripts out and that was A Few Right Thinking Men, the first book in the Rolly series. And I got responses from almost every publisher I sent it to. Oh, wow. Um, and I 
chose Pantera Press yeah. um, because they had a very corporate way of doing things. They responded really quickly yeah. and they uh, their contracts were what I was used to. And I knew myself that, you know, after the experience with the agents, um, I, I was looking at a way that I could continue in this life happily and I knew that I was coming to it from with a corporate uh, background where I expected my les- letters answered. You know, I answered letters straight away. I expected my letters answered. Um, I expected contracts and I expected people to tell me what was happening and so on. And I thought, well, I think in a traditional publishing model where you send your manuscript away, you may hear in six months, you may not, uh, yeah. etc. I thought that will drive me crazy. Yeah. I will just spend my entire life, and I hate waiting for things. I'm yeah. one of those people that impatient. Well, I just think the, the whole thing of waiting drives mm. me insane. Mm. Um, and you know, even when people keep me waiting at bus stops and so on, it just feels like wasted time. Uh, <laughs> you I could, could be, be yeah, doing I could, something. I could be writing a novel. <laughs> and, uh, so I. Um, so, I, so I chose Panther, and and I met Ali and and John, and I still think that one of the most important things about choosing a publisher and choosing who you're going to work with is you've got to find someone who really loves your work. Oh gosh, yeah, and you've got to find the connection and the relationship. I exactly. mean, it's got to be that. And you know, when I first met John and Ali, before they even said hello, John asked me, "Does Rolly get Edna in the end?" Yeah, and wow. I thought, wow, yeah, wow. <laughs> I thought that's just lovely. Yeah. Um, and um, and so I was one of their first authors, and you know I knew that was taking a risk because I had the opportunity to go with a very established publisher. Yeah, uh, but I I I really liked them, and I thought, well, you know, starting with a new outfit also means that I'll probably get more attention. Yeah, um, and I didn't really know what I was doing, and. I kind of like the idea of joining a new company and we were all both feeling our way together. And how many years ago was that? That will be nine years. Oh, wow. Uh, actually, no, well, what, yeah, t- t- ten years ago I, in September I, I first met Ali and John in sight. Right. Um, so it's been nine years since I was first published yeah. because uh, A Few Right Thinking Men came out the following year in 2010. Yeah, wow. So tell me about your writing style. Tell me about the genres you write about or that you write in. Well, the the Rowley series is probably historical crime fiction. Yeah. Um, my uh, my writing style or my writing process is um, is instinctive, I suppose, is the best way to put it. I'm a complete pantser. Yeah. Um, and I'm on the extreme end. But see, that surprises me. Why does it surprise you? Because... Of your background. Because I'm a lawyer. Well, and because of your astrophysics. I would have thought that you would have been much a planner, I guess. Um, No, no. I think think people underestimate how much of mathematics is about creativity. Yeah. And just forging forward and trying things. Yeah. Um, And similarly, I think people underestimate. Well, people probably don't know how much of law is just thinking on your feet and making things up as you go. Yeah. Um, of course. And they know, probably don't want us to know that. No, they probably, <laughs> they probably <laughs> frown on that. <laughs> but, but realistically, there's, there's a lot of that. So even as a lawyer, um, and as a corporate lawyer, I was often asked to give advice on the spot. Yeah. Wow. Um, and on, and you just have to, you know, be able to think on your feet and yeah. you have to trust that 
what will come out in the end will be well based right. on the experience and yeah, you know exactly yeah, yeah okay so, so pantsing is a similar sort of process you have to trust that the yeah. story is there and you will find it um, yeah. if you just keep writing um i i have this theory because because I, I watch television while i write um and uh, and i have a theory that um i'm just you know i have interviewed uh, well over a hundred writers and it's the first time i've oh, heard really? that yeah well you know i think a lot of writers don't want to admit it <laughs> but uh, i i was speaking to um i don't know if you've come across kylie ladd oh yes of is course it? i have she's so, so lovely she is wonderful and kylie's yeah. of course a cognitive psychologist yes and, and a great writer yes and i was speaking with her on a panel and i sort of raised this and the whole room started tittering and laughing and and she explained it she said no 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 what's going on is a, a very sensible cognitive process your your the creative center in your brain is in your prefrontal cortex right and you cannot access it directly and that's why when you're looking for a word you can't find it but when you go away and do something else that word pops into your head right it does and that's the process that's happening. So what I'm doing when I'm watching television is I'm distracting my brain so my prefrontal cortex can take over and write the book. Yeah, wow, it's that interesting. Uh, and that works really well for me. Yeah. I can't write in silence and quiet. I've got to... Because, you know, so many authors go on retreats so yeah. they can have the quiet to write. That's yeah. not you. No, no, I you just... You have had... to take your laptop and a Wi-Fi thing and make sure you've got access to something. Yeah, so I write really well in hotels. Yeah. Uh, because I turn on the television and yes. I watch television. I sit up late at night and I write. Yeah. Uh, or I can write in airports or wherever. And, you know, when, when I started writing, my children were really little. Yeah. And so I had to get used to writing in the middle of mayhem. Yeah. Uh, with, uh, with my brain always slightly distracted. And then my, you know, that my subconscious part of my brain just took over and it wrote the novel for me. Yeah. Um, tell me about metafiction. So metafiction is that's crossing the lines, and yeah. it's uh, and it's writing. Technically, the definition is writing about writing. Right, uh, is what metafiction is about. So crossing the lines is a story in which uh, there is a crime writer, and she's writing a story about a literary fiction writer who is writing a story about a crime writer, and through the book. Uh, you're never quite sure which one of them is real and which one of them is imagined by the other. And what I was trying to do with that book... So that's, I find that incredibly difficult writing. Um, it wasn't any different to writing my other books. It just came out. Right. I just immersed. And I'm quite immersive when I write. Yeah. And it seemed very, very natural. I wasn't aware of trying to do anything technical. Yeah. Um. And it just evolved into the book that it was quite naturally. And I, I tend to also be a, a one-draft writer. There's not a lot of rewriting right. um, that happens. And that's, again, my legal background where you choose the words precisely the first time. Um, crossing the lines is very much my love letter to writing itself. Mm. Um, when appearing at festivals and so on people are always asking me about my relationship with Roland Sinclair so it all occurred to me that people are really interested in what goes on in a writer's mind and and what their relation is to their protagonists so that's what I was trying to explore in that book trying to give people an insight of what it's like to be a writer and what it's like to be me yeah 
Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Okay, so tell me about All the Tears in China. All the Tears in China is the ninth book in the Roland Sinclair series. Yeah, wow. Um, and you've got quite a following. I mean, they're bestsellers, aren't they? They There are some very dedicated Roly fans out yeah. there, which is just really lovely. You know, meeting the fans of your book is like meeting the, the friends of your children. Yeah. You've got someone in common that you love. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's a real privilege. Um, and some of them know Roly very, very well and know yeah. the books incredibly well. Uh, so they keep me on my toes too. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, it's, yeah, it, it, it's obviously struck a chord and come at a right time when Australians are starting to think about their own history and their own uh, part in in some of the big events in the world like World War II. Mm-hmm. And the Roland Sinclair series in particular it takes place right through the 30s and what I'm really interested in in that series is all the things that led up to World War II, all the polarisation, all the scapegoating, all the... Um, all well, the similar to what we're going through now. Exactly, it? exactly. And that's what's really alarming. When mm. you're writing this series, you see how closely the 1930s tracks against mm. contemporary times. I'm often surprised that we don't learn much through history. No, and you know, even if we don't, if we, even if we do learn, I think we seem unable to divert. Mm. It's almost like there is this We're momentum. Making, yeah, making the same mistakes. Exactly. And no matter how much, so it's, it's even more intriguing to me now because I'm looking, I'm always searching for a point at which we could have turned things around. Mm. Uh, in the hope that it might give me a clue as to what to do now. Um, so in this book, previously, Roland uh, has always looked west. Uh, he's been to Germany and he's been to England and even America and, and I have examined the, the tensions and the rise of fascism um, and the, the alienation of certain segments of society that occurred um, in the West. This book, I I take Roland to the East and I make him turn around and look at what's going on in the East because quite often we forget, mm-hmm. um, and and with this and make him confront, you know, what Japan did in Manchuria, um, the the weaponization of trade, um, the the colonialization of of cities like. Shanghai, uh, where native populations are, are secondary citizens in their own country. Mm. Um, and it was those sort of things that I wanted to explore. And quite often when I want to explore something, I just send Roland there and have a look at it. And get him to find out for you. Yeah, I get him to do that. <laughs> Who does the research? Um, I do the research as I'm going. Yeah. Um, so I will... Um, I've never been to Shanghai, but yeah. there is a lot to be said by traveling by Google. Yes. Um, and there is a lot of material on Shanghai because it was a place that attracted a lot oh, of yeah. writers. Yeah. And, and it still does. Yeah. And so there, there is, there was a lot written about Shanghai in 1935. Mm. So I, I found a wealth of information out there as well as footage, mm. uh, from the time because, um, film was just coming in. Mm. Um, and there's lots of footage of Shanghai and the city, the city of Shanghai is not as it was in 1935. No. Um, and you know, in, in some ways that's, that's a double-edged sword. It means that 
you can't go and see it. But it also means that nobody else can come in and say, well, that's not where that street is. Exactly. <laughs> um, have you got many more books in you? I think so. I can't imagine doing anything else. One of the And you're full-time now? I'm full-time now. And one of the lovely things about being a writer is you don't have to retire. No, that's right. Um, So I am taking my time with Roland. I I know where it ends. I know the end game. So the last book will be written in 1945. Right. Uh, But initially when I started writing, I, I started in 1932 and I thought there'd be one book for each year between 1932 and 1945, which would have been a long enough series. But... I've just got to book, oh, I've just finished book nine, I'm writing book ten, and I haven't got out of 1935. Yeah, wow. So there was a lot going on. Yeah. And I don't want to, and none of the, none of the books cover the same ground, but there was just so much going on. Solari, congratulations. Um, fabulous body of work. The new book is called All the Tears in China. Uh, congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Nice conversation. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.